0: Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. Now in the book of Deuteronomy, when the Lord was establishing the law, Every seven years, they would, take out the enti- they would bring out the entire law of God and read it in people's hearing. Read the entire law in one day. And they are now in captivity, and they are now going to hear the book of the law of Moses. For a lot of them, this is the first time they've ever heard it. For a lot of them, they don't even speak Hebrew. They speak Aramaic because they were born in captivity, and it has to be interpreted for them. So, verse 2 So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday, approximately six hours, before the men and women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. I'd appreciate people being attentive to me preaching for six hours much less 30 minutes. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for the purpose. Skip down to verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. It lists a series of men who were, who were Levites, and they helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. Verse 8, so they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. 11 so the levites quieted all the people saying be still for the day is holy do not be grieved and all the people went their way to eat and drink to send portions and rejoice greatly because here's why because they understood the words that were declared to them verse 10 the very familiar quotation that we hear and have heard since we were children which is the title of my message, very straightforward. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you, God, that you give us joy in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of a storm, in the midst of things that are swirling around us in our environment, in our lives, God. But there can be an inner peace. There can be an inner joy, a joy that you have given and that the world, that the devil, that my circumstances cannot take away, Lord. Help us, God, to walk in a greater portion of joy here today, Lord. We thank you what you give to us and fellowship with you, that we can walk and we can rejoice and be full of gladness, even in spite of what is facing us currently. We love you. We praise you. I ask that you would bless your people here today, God. Have mercy, Lord. Help your people, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Up to this point in the history of the people of Israel, the northern kingdom had been taken captive by Assyria in 586, I'm sorry, 722, B.C. And the southern kingdom was later laid waste by Babylon in 586. And all of the people of the Hebrews were now held captive by the Persians who had overcome the Babylonians. And we read at the beginning of Nehemiah that Nehemiah is a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. And he has a great great anguish and burden for the people of Israel and for the city. He hears of how that the city has been laid waste because of, ultimately, because of the disobedience of the people of God 70 years prior and how that the judgment of God had come, how that the walls were pulled down of Jerusalem, how that it was just devastating to hear as an Israelite, as a Hebrew, to hear the state of that holy city, Jerusalem. And there had been other um, pilgrimages pilgrimages of other people of God who had been taken and gone to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah was another group of people who went back to Jerusalem, having been exiled for all this time. And his task was to rebuild the walls. And that's really what chapters 1 through 7 is. It's an account of Nehemiah building the walls around the city in order to defend themselves from God's enemies, from the people's enemies. And Ezra, he was a contemporary. There's also a book of Ezra. And as a matter of fact, originally the book of Ezra and Nehemiah were actually one book. And um, Jerome, who translated it into the Latin Vulgate, he separated the two. And that has been what we are given in two separate books. But it's actually one book. And Ezra and Nehemiah were contemporaries of one another. Ezra was the priest, as you can see in that account in chapter 8. He was the priest who was there to reestablish temple worship. And if you look in in Ezra chapter 7, Ezra gave himself completely to the word of God, to the law of God, to know it and then be able to teach it. It actually says it that way, that he longed to know the word of God, the law of God, and then wanted to be able to teach it to the people. And Nehemiah, being his cohort, being his contemporary, he became the governor of Judea. And he was the governor for some time. A wonderful man, a wonderful leader, a courageous man, a brave man, a man's man, a godly man who sought God's advice and wisdom on how to reestablish and rebuild the walls. And you see here now in Nehemiah chapter 8, how that, now that Ezra has brought the law back and they're trying to reestablish what has been lost a few generations ago. And they say, bring out the law of Moses. Bring out that law which was originally given to us as a people that separated us from every other people group that we uniquely have been given and selected as God's people and have been given this law. And because their forefathers had transgressed it, they found themselves in this position because of disobedience to the law of God. And so for the first time, for a lot of these people, for the very first time, They have heard the word of God. They've heard the word of God. And you can see their response in verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites had taught this people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. They wept because now they realize it's because of sin, it's because of disobedience, it's because of the judgment of God that our forefathers have transgressed this law that we find ourselves in this position. And not only that, but now we individually and personally realize we have been living a life of transgression. We have the law of God now presented to us and now we find ourselves guilty before a holy and righteous God. And as I said earlier, some of these individuals, they were born in captivity. They, they spoke Aramaic. They did not speak their, the Hebrew tongue and the law being written in Hebrew. And so there was translation that needed to occur for people to understand. And then the Levites would go amongst the people and explain to them and teach them so that they could understand. And as all these people, hundreds of thousands of people, as they all came to a knowledge of the truth, they came to an understanding... Their response was this, holy, 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 you are a holy God. This is a holy law and the wrath of God abides upon us. We have been living outside of covenant relationship with him. And it is with this reading of the law that this is the reconciliation of the covenant right here before our eyes. This is them reestablishing the covenant that God had originally made made even with Abraham. And reestablishing the covenant of the law that God made with Moses. Moses being the mediator of the old covenant. And they all wept and mourned over the fact of their sin and their brokenness and how undone they were in the presence of a holy God. But you see here, in verse 10, Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. I want you to know this year, this afternoon, there is a time to mourn and to lament and to travail over sin. And there is a time that the Lord lays a burden upon us where where we groan within our spirits and we are led to intercede for maybe a wayward son or daughter. And there's this heaviness. There there is this anguish of soul that the Lord and the Holy Spirit is travailing through us. And you can go down to an altar and just pour your heart out to the Lord, either for somebody else or for your own self. And there is a time to lament and to uh, mourn and to weep depending on the circumstance. But I want you to know this as well. A place of lamentation, a place of mourning, is not a place of continual existence. A place specifically, relating to the scripture, let let me speak specifically. Specifically, sorrow over sin, mourning over sin in your life, should not be a continual place of existence. It's not where I live as a child of God. It's not where I live. Listen, the people of God should be the most joyous and rejoicing people on this planet. Because I once was dead and now I'm alive. I once was full of depression and jealousy and covetousness. And now I'm full of joy and goodness and peace and love. It is a completely new life. And I am redeemed from the chains of sin and of the devil. And ultimately, my destination is heaven. My destination is the presence of God. And it is not especially holy for you to have a frown on your face. To walk around with a frown on your face is not pious. There's some people you interact with as Christians, and you want to start singing to them. If you're happy and you know it, tell your face. If you're happy and you know it, tell your face. Don't you know you're a child of God? I don't care what is happening on Fox News or CNN or across the world. God is in control. He knows, He sees, He hears. And and this, this affliction is light and momentary. And we have an eternal weight of glory waiting for us at the end of all of this. And so there is reason to rejoice and be full of joy. The word joy, it means to rejoice, to make glad, to gladden. And oftentimes, and you, I'm sure you've heard this, and it is true, unlike happiness, it does not change or cannot be removed depending upon outward circumstances. It is not dictated, it does not come and go based upon the circumstances around you. Happiness may. Now, in our current society, it would appear in how crazy it has gotten The highest virtue in our society right now is the pursuit of happiness. You do what makes you happy. You do what will bring contentment into your heart. No matter the cost, you do, you pursue. You are entitled to be happy. You deserve to be happy. And so you pursue happiness. And that is a trick of the enemy. That is a lie from hell. Because my pursuit of happiness in this life without Christ will always lead first to emptiness, to continual searching and longing. It will ultimately end in destruction. Because if I happen to find my happiness in a man or a woman... If a person may find it in a man or a woman, or in their job that they always wanted, or they're finally happy because they have kids, or they're finally happy because they have that house they wanted, and they're finally happy, their happiness is based upon and predicated upon what is currently happening in their lives. But what happens if you go into foreclosure? What happens, God forbid, a child dies? What happens if your spouse leaves you? Your happiness goes with it, doesn't it? It leaves. It's fleeting. It's transitory. It's temporary. It comes and goes. If I get a a flat on the way to church, I'm not happy about it. I'm not happy. I'm not happy, but I can still be full of joy. Still full of joy. And there's a difference. And so, we see this in our society, don't we? Just follow your heart. Follow your heart. And let me give you some really good advice. Do not follow your heart. That's mushy, psycho babble of the world. That's a Facebook post Waitin'. Just follow your heart. You deserve to be happy. Whatever. Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Your pursuit of happiness, guided by the flesh, outside of the context of the truth of the Word of God, will lead to destruction. It won't lead to happiness. It will be momentary happiness, but it will be fleeting, based upon something that is not here to stay. And so if you allow me here today, I'm going to draw a few things from the book of Nehemiah, a few things from other places in the word of God. But I just want to talk about how that we cultivate and that we gain joy in our lives. All of us are at different places in our walk with the Lord. All of us the fruit of the spirit is given to us in Christ, but there's a cultivation of that fruit that has to occur in our lives. And there are some of us that it's a real struggle maybe in this season of life to to really have godly joy. to To really have the joy of the Lord because you're going through something. You're experiencing something. You face something that just keeps hitting you, hitting you, hitting you. But I want to talk about here today how that we can cultivate and garner and gain more joy in the Lord. So, Number one, applying from Nehemiah, it is understanding by experience God's nature by his word. Do you know that God is joy? When you think about the attributes of God, some, we, don't, we don't often think about joy as an attribute of God as well. If you look in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus sent out the 70 and he gave them authority to preach the gospel and cast out demons, and when the 70 came back to Jesus, they rejoiced because even they said, even the demons are subject to us. And Jesus said, do not rejoice because of this, meaning don't have joy in your life because demons are subject to you and they're cast out by your word, but rejoice because your name is written in heaven. And then spontaneously, Jesus begins to rejoice in the Spirit. He began began to pray to the Father. He said, Father, I thank you that you have not revealed, basically, the way of salvation, the way of God to the clever and to the wise of this age, but you've revealed it to babes. Oh, and he begins to thank the Father for what salvation is and how that he reveals himself to the lowly, to the humble, and not to the, the big and to the wise and the clever of this age. And he rejoices. Jesus, fully God, fully man. He rejoices in the fact that men's names are written in heaven. My goodness. That is the nature of God. As much as he is holy and righteous in love, he is joy as well. That is an attribute of God. And he wants to implant that into your life. And I cannot have a proper understanding of who God is, have a revelation experience of what his nature is except by what is revealed to me by the truth of the word of God. And you see these people in the book of Nehemiah, they had no understanding of really what was right and wrong until the word of God entered into their lives. And then they realized and had an understanding of what sin was. But then they, they are, it's revealed to them, do not lament, do not mourn. Don't continue in your mourning. Don't continue in your lamentation. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. His joy. Not not just something he, He has in His hand and He gives it to you. Him. He. He is joy. His presence in your life. The Word of God applied to your life. It is joy. It is strength. And in the midst of... The heartache in the midst of the destruction around you, Hebrews, rejoice in the Lord. Because though you're mourning over sin, you now are in covenant relationship with God. Rejoice. And that can only come through revelation of the truth and experience of the word of God in my life. Many people have a false sense of joy based upon a false idea of who God is. And they have supposed joy even in the midst of their sin. And that is not real joy. Hold on a second. Let me use this. And that is not real joy. And so, it's the trick of the Devil to give people a false sense of hope, a false sense of peace, a false sense of joy while yet even in their sin. And only the Word of God can reveal to that individual if they are or are not in right covenant relationship with the Lord. And it, so it comes by a revelation of the truth and understanding who God is and receiving of His person, of His divine nature. And so you see, like, for instance, in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So the entrance of God's word brings light, and it convicts me of my sin. I come to this place of godly sorrow, but joy will come in the morning. It is now a cascading effect of joy should now overwhelm me because I've come to the truth, I know my position in Christ, and now His joy can flood into my life because my name is written in heaven. You You cannot have godly sorrow which leads to repentance, leading to salvation, outside of the truth of the Word of God preached. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. It's by revelation of the Word of God and its application to my life that this joy can have its entrance into my life. And as I said earlier, this is not a place of existence, this place of lamentation and mourning, let's say, over sin. It should always always come with the sum, su- summary, and at the end, should, joy and rejoicing should always come in. If you read in James 4 and 8, he says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. The sinner who is, who is in a false sense of joy and rejoicing, in pleasure in sin, he now needs to mourn and lament over his sin. Let 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 your, your your position outside of Christ let it be turned from joy to gloom. Have sorrow over your sin, over your sin. But look at verse 10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. He will lift up your head. That is not a place of existence, that's not a place of being. Listen, when you come down to this altar, this altar represents death. Death to the flesh. But when you rise from that altar, we ought to be rejoicing in the Spirit. Don't go around with your head low, lamenting over your your state, but be full of rejoicing in who you are in Christ. Listen, listen. We should always leave this altar. It doesn't matter if you come down here for salvation, if you come down here with sin in your life as a Christian and you know you got to get some things right, or if you come down here with a burden for a loved one. Always be determined. Whatever need I bring to the Lord, when I come down to the end of my needs, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to make the choice to praise and to worship Him and rejoice in Him. Because I'm not going to get up from that altar in my place of mourning and weeping and lamentation. I'm going to get up in the hope and joy of the Lord that he gives me in the midst of that need. In the midst of that need. So if somebody comes down to the altar, to the end of themselves, oh, let there be joy in their lives. Let there be a cultivation of rejoicing in their lives. And not this frown. Not this feeling sorry for yourself but rejoicing in what the Lord has done. And so number one, the cultivation of joy comes through understanding by experience God's nature by His Word. And number two, repentance of any sin. You know what it's like as a Christian when you allow some things in. When there's unrepentant sin in your life. When you've allowed some things to creep in that otherwise you would not have allowed and you know what begins to dissipate in your life? Joy. And the next point we'll explain why. But if there be any unrepentant sin, that is sin that you are harboring, sin that is justified in your own mind, sin that you're giving yourself to and you're not warring against, if there's anything in there, in your life, there be no the, the, the joy of the Lord will begin to dissipate, because the Holy Spirit is grieved. He's grieved with the existence of unrepented sin in our lives. And aren't you thankful for the grace of God? Aren't you thankful for his long suffering? And the ability for us, we have the privilege that we can repent. If you do sin, my little children, we have an advocate with the Father. If you sin, he's faithful and just to forgive if we will confess it. He's faithful and just to forgive. And so you can look at the life of David, for instance, how that he fell into this place of complacency and then eventual sin with Bathsheba, and he covered it up, covered it up. And Nathan came and accused him of what he did, and he repented. He, he humbled himself, and he repented. And there were consequences for his sin, but the Lord restored to him. And, wh- and if you read in Psalms 51, which is his, his prayer of repentance, What did he ask the Lord to restore to him? Restore to me the joy of your salvation. The joy of your salvation. Don't play with sin. Don't play with that thing which will grieve the Holy Spirit. And and then when you come in here, you can't lift your hands. You've got something there that you're harboring, you're allowing. You can't truly worship. You can't experience the presence of God. The joy is not there as it ought to be. Come to the Lord and allow Him to take that. Give it to Him. But if there be any sin in our lives, any unrepentant sin, anything that we are harboring, that we're justifying, we will see the joy of the Lord begin to dissipate. But He can restore that joy, the joy of salvation. In the presence of the Lord, there's fullness of joy. In the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. Number three, God's joy is gained, cultivated through obedience. Through obedience. Sometimes we, or oftentimes we do things that don't feel good, but we do it because we know it's right and we do it by faith. And we do it because God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He who promised is faithful. He'll bring it to completion. What he says he will do. And if we will walk in obedience, motivated by love, not duty. Motivated by love, not by duty. When Jesus went to the cross, his flesh did not want to do it. And that's why he said, if it be your will, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, your will be done. Not mine, your will be done. And to his flesh and to his Humanness, it was not pleasant, and he didn't want to do it. But Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says that we, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has been lifted up to the right hand of the Father. Jesus endured the cross because he loved the Father and he would he did everything the father told him to do and he was obedient but he knew there was joy on the other side of the cross he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him the joy that was set before him there is no greater place in your life than when you're walking in simple obedience and his joy floods into your life you're right with god you're living in obedience to Him. If you recall in Acts chapter 5, when Peter and John are, they, they heal the man at the, the, the gate of the temple. It's, it causes a stir and commotion. They're talked to by the high priest and the Sanhedrin. And then they, they go out and they, they begin to preach some more and more people are saved. And, and the high priest and all the individuals, they become very upset and they take them. They put them into prison. They said, we told you not to preach in the name of Jesus Christ. We told you not to do this. They put them into prison. God miraculously lets them out of prison. And they go early in the morning. They begin to teach in the temple. And and the high priests and and officials, they went and took them once more and put them before them. We said, we told you not to preach in the name of Jesus. We told you not to preach healing in the name of Jesus. Salvation in the name of Jesus. We commanded you not to teach in this name. You know how they responded? But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. I ought to obey God rather than man. And you know what the response was? For the first time, for the first time in the the book of Acts, we see physical harm come to the people of God. And it says, and they agreed with him in verse 40. And when they had called the apostles and be beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. This is the first time they have experienced physical harm in the chapter 5 of Acts. First time they've experienced physical harm. They were beaten. They were probably beaten with rods. They experienced physical harm. And you know what their response was? Because we desire to obey God, We've been given the great commission. We've been given a task. We've been called to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we rather obey God rather than man. It says, so they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Obedience brings blessing. It brings joy into your life. And and listen... A good indicator, a good indicator of what your motivation is in obeying the Lord is the presence or lack of presence of joy. Because in religion, there is no love, it's duty. But in relationship with Jesus Christ, I obey because I love him. And because it's based upon a relationship of love with him, there is the presence of joy. Do you think there's any joy in a forced marriage? Because there's no love. There's no appreciation of the fellowship and communion between that man and woman. It's forced. There's no love. It's not based and predicated and founded on love. And so if in your service to the Lord, service to the church, service to people, if ever there begins to creep in a drudgery, And there begins to creep in this this hesitation and this exasperation of heart. Begin to check and say, why am I doing this? Why am I coming to church? Why am I serving? Why am I reading? If it becomes religious activity, if it becomes duty, it becomes drudgery. And then the joy is removed. But if I am serving the Lord, obeying Him on the basis of my love for Him... I will obey him. I will be in communion with him. And joy will be present. Listen, there's a lot of religions out there and full of ardent religious adherents for every religion. There's a lot of Muslims who are more obedient to the Quran than some Christians are to the Bible. So, So mere... Mere obedience on the face is not the proof. It is the existence of joy in the process of obedience because it's predicated on love. There's no love between a Muslim and Allah. They're scared to death of Allah, and He doesn't exist, anyways. It's religious duty, it's drudgery, it's habit. It's religion, but we're in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And let me end right here. Turn with me to John chapter 15. John 15 and 5. In verse 1, he just talked about how he is the true vine. The Father is the vine dresser. Look at verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so you will be my disciples. Verse 9, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Meaning if you love me, you're going to obey me. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, because Jesus loved the Father, he obeyed him. In the, verse 11 right here, these things I have spoken to you. This is why I've spoken this to you. This is the intended goal and reason, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Overflowing, to the brim, not in part, What the Lord gives to us, he gives totally and wholly. And so number four, God's joy is gained, it's cultivated, it's garnered in our lives by the fellowship with the very source of joy. It's abiding in Jesus. He is joy. He's in joy. Nothing can replace being in the presence of Jesus Christ. Nothing can replace dwelling and receiving from him, communing with him, fellowshipping with him, and more specifically, that is in my fellowship with him and my communion in him. It is through the, act, the action of worship, active worship, and lifting up of the name of Jesus, even when I'm in the midst of the storm, his joy supernaturally comes into my life. When I, just as Paul and Silas were in that Philippian jail, they began to sing, and they were praying at midnight, and they began to sing in the midst of a terrible situation, a dungeon prison. They were inj- unjustly thrown into that prison, and they began to sing because it wasn't about happiness. It was about the joy of the Lord exuding from their lives, and that was the strength of their lives in that moment. It was the joy of the Lord that sustained them and kept them. It was the joy of God that allowed Jesus to go to the cross. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Because surely I would faint if I saw the the, the great depravity of what my sin has done. I would be in a constant state of lamentation and mourning over the state of who I am. But with the cross, with the blood of Jesus Christ... I now can go forward in the joy of the Lord and be strengthened by that. And I can get up from an altar where my flesh has died and get up in the joy of the Spirit because I have chosen to worship Him in the midst of trying circumstances. To abide in Him is to praise Him, to worship Him, to lift Him up. There's some of us when we go to prayer, just quit telling Him what you need. Just worship Him. Just tell him how wonderful he is and how thankful you are that your name is written in heaven. Just lift up the name of Jesus Christ and what you need really in worshiping him he will give you because he'll give you his joy. He'll give you more of himself. He's the vine we're the branch. Everything flows from him into us as we abide and cling to him. And one primary way by which you cling to him is worship Him, yeah. praise Him, lift Him up. It doesn't matter how bad it is around you. He is still good. It doesn't matter what's happening in the political climate. The Word of God still stands true. He's still upon His throne. He's still in control. He's still in control. And so I can go forward in a spirit of joy. Would you come help me? Because I am in the very presence And I am abiding and I am attached to the person of Jesus Christ. And it is through active worship and lifting up his name and seeking him and praising him and just loving him. He gives me joy and not just a little joy. He gives it to me to the full. To the full. So that my joy may be full. I'll never forget a few years ago, this is probably, well, probably five, six, seven years ago when we had the School of Christ here in Beaumont and Carter Conlon came and he spoke. I'll never forget the series of messages that he he spoke. But one message was about the joy of the Lord is your strength. And I'll never forget how that he spoke about the parable of the prodigal son. How that the son having come to his senses, wasted everything, brought shame to himself, brought shame to his father, he comes back to the father and he wants to be a servant. He's content with just being a servant and the father reinstates him as a son. And he forgives him and he reconciles him to relationship and he puts the ring and the the robe and, and the shoes on his feet and they begin to have a party for him. They rejoice over this son coming back. And, and any, in any Jewish celebration, there's a lot of activity. There's a lot of rejoicing. A, a wedding or a feast of some sort, there's a lot of rejoicing. And, and he was saying, I could imagine, I could imagine that that boy, he's still overwhelmed with this grief of what he's done, with this regret. He knows he's a son, he's got this robe on him, but under that robe, he still has dirty, nasty garments. And I can imagine he's just sitting there and he's probably overwhelmed by the grace of his father, by the goodness of his father. And, and not only has the father just taken him back, but the father now, he is throwing a party, a banquet for this son who does not deserve it. And you, he said, I could imagine that this father, because of the presence of his son who once, who once was dead and now is alive, I could imagine that the father begins to dance in the midst of the sun, He begins to rejoice and dance and be full of gladness and rejoicing. And the son, he's just sitting there. He's watching the father rejoice and be full of gladness and joy. And he's saying, the joy of the Lord is your strength. He rejoices over you. And in Luke chapter 15, the woman who lost the coin when she found the coin, she rejoiced over the coin and asked her neighbors to rejoice over the coin. And there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner repenting than ninety-nine just persons. And the man who had lost the one sheep and had a hundred, but he lost one, when he found that sheep, he he came back rejoicing and he asked everybody to rejoice with him because he found the one. And all of heaven rejoices over one sinner rather than 99 just persons who do not need to be saved. And then he ends with the prodigal son. There is rejoicing over heaven. God's nature is joy. And he rejoices over his children. And that is a source of strength to you and to me. I... Can be a pleasing child to him. And in the midst of my circumstances and what I experience, I am not an orphan. I am not alone. His joy can be my strength. His very rejoicing over me. The joy he puts in me. Me abiding in him. It is joy flowing into my life. And what he has given the world and circumstances cannot take away. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Would you stand with me? Thank you, Jesus, that we have the wonderful privilege of experiencing, Lord, your joy, your peace, your hope, God. To the world, we look crazy because we can still Go forward with a smile on our face and we can still be optimistic about the future. And we may be cast down, but we are not destroyed. We may be harmed temporarily, but we are not destroyed. We thank you, Jesus, for your sufficiency, what you give to us, what is available to us, God. Remove all sin in our lives, God. Let there be no playing with sin, Lord. We play with fire, we'll get burned, Lord. Let there be a repentance of sin. Let there be a renewal in our hearts. Let there be joy in our salvation. Let us go forward, not with drudgery in serving you, not because we think we have to, but because we want to, because we love you. And with that, joy will flood into our lives. Oh God, help us to be in fellowship with you, just to worship you, just to be in your presence just to lift up your name in the midst of our circumstance. And it's when your presence descends upon our lives in the midst of our praise and our worship. Have your way here this afternoon, Lord Jesus.